This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. As we all know, the saxophone is the sexiest of all the instruments and nobody could make a saxophone sing like Sonny Rollins. Sonny's still alive, he's 93 years old as I record this and he is legendary for a whole bunch of things, his dexterity, his energetic performances, his amazing songwriting and his deified improvisational skills. Sonny's being interviewed here in 2011. He was in the capital for the Wellington Jazz Festival. This interview is a personal favourite of one of Kim's producers, Mark Cuby, who was a big help putting this list together. So thanks very much for that, Mark. Really hope you enjoy this. He's regarded as one of the all-time great tenor saxophonists, along with Coleman Hawkins and John Coltrane. He's been a professional jazz musician for 60 years, famous for his improvisation, hugely influential, Sonny Rollins. And it's been a career punctuated with spiritual investigation of various kinds. Zen Buddhism, for example. I think music is a very, very spiritual gift from our higher power, whatever that is. And uh, in a very specific way, in my playing, I'm a jazz improviser and when I improvise I try to lose consciousness and uh, go into my uh, subconscious so I understand that much Zen teaching sort of uh, emphasizes that uh, the reality of life is the subconscious and uh, when I improvise when I play my music and I'm on the stage that's the state that I strive to get into. How often when you're performing, when you're improvising then, you said you try to lose consciousness, how often do you get in that zone? As a child, when I first got my first saxophone, my mother bought my first saxophone from me. I was about seven or eight years old. I took the saxophone and I went into the room, you know, and I closed the door and I played and played and played and played. And actually, I was sort of in that zone then. I am sort of what you would call the stream of consciousness player. It's the same way that I play today. Basically, I am a very, I hate to use the word, but I'm a primitive player. If you say primitive these days, people shudder, but there's something about primitive which is close to nature. And in that sense, I consider myself a primitive. And uh, as I said, when I play, I go right to the source. I didn't need to know anything about music. I just loved it, and I began playing. So I think that some of the principles in Zen Buddhism speak about the deeper knowledge. You've had a couple of sabbaticals, famous sabbaticals from your career. One of them, you withdrew from public performances after your mother died for about three years. What did you do during that time, 1959 to 62? Yes, well, that was the period when I um, spent practicing on a bridge near where I lived at the famous Williamsburg Bridge <laughs> concerts. Huh? Right, right, right. Why? Right. What, what, why? 
the first time I walked up there on the bridge, it was, it just, I just happened to be walking uh, on the street, and I looked up and saw the steps, and I said, gee, let me walk up, and I saw the bridge and the expanse of the bridge and the long way going across the East River there. Did it have and great acoustics, or what, what drew you there? The acoustics oh. are wonderful. The acoustics are wonderful because I was playing against the natural elements. The only thing that I had playing uh, with me was some of the boats coming along the river underneath. They would blow their horns, and uh, I would try <laughs> to answer them, you know, so we had a nice little game going there. But it was a wonderful place to improve your endurance and your volume of your playing because it, you had nothing, there was no walls around you. Was it some kind of crisis that, that overtook you at that point? Because you were extraordinarily successful until then. You'd, you'd done Saxophone Colossus, which is of course a title which has stuck with you. But then very shortly afterwards you withdrew. Why? Well, you see, Kim, this is perhaps the most important aspect of that whole um, story. What happened was that I wasn't happy with my own work. I had achieved some success in the music world, but I was not happy within myself. I wanted to do more. I wanted to practice more. I had some more music inside of me that I was not able to get out while I was uh, doing a, a performance scheduled. And I knew that I had to just get away from the musical scene and just practice by myself and improve some things I wanted to do about myself. And uh, this was the, one of the best things I've ever done in my life against the advice of all of my friends and colleagues and fans, I did what I wanted to do, and I went away and practiced. It's a lesson that people should do what they instinctively, deep down, feel they should do, and not go by the crowd. When you came back, is it fair to say that you began to play free jazz more than you had before? Well, I eventually uh, got involved with some free jazz musicians. Um, I don't think it was as a result of my going on the bridge. I think the free jazz movement was just uh, coming into being at that time, and uh, I, being a very eclectic player, I, I just uh, played with some free jazz musicians. And then you dropped out again. I say dropped out, dropped out of public life. I don't suppose it... F well, it may have felt like dropping out to you because in 68, I think, you went to the Indian monastery and you right. got taken up by spiritual studies, I suppose. Did you know at that point that you would return to the music industry? I knew that I would, but I was open for whatever might happen to me. But I, you know, for instance, when I went to India, I had my saxophone with me. So I didn't go there as if, well, this is the end of my career. But I was searching for something. 
I didn't know what I would eventually learn there, if it would be beneficial to me, if it would change my life. I had no idea. But I did have my saxophone with me, uh, just in case, if you want to put it that way. It must have been hard for you at times, because jazz fans are notoriously insistent on what they want and what should be played and what they deserve to hear. And having been very successful, you change your direction. Did people criticize you? Well, I always had a sense that I knew what I was doing and that I was on the right track. Even as a child, when I first started to play, I knew that I would be a prominent musician when I grew up. I always felt that. So uh, as I became uh, well-known and so forth, I got used to being criticized. I was criticized quite a bit, but I had people that praised me. The people that accepted me were the great people like Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis and Bud Powell and Dizzy Gillespie and J.J. Johnson. I mean, the people that made the music that I was playing, those were the people that accepted me. So I felt that, uh, you know, I can accept criticism and uh, my skin got a little more harder, you know, not as thin-skinned. And so um, today I'm still out here playing, so I still expect to be criticized. It's just that now, of course, at my age, it doesn't mean as much to me. The critics are afraid of, of criticizing Sonny Rollins too much nowadays. <laughs> that, must be a, <laughs> that must be a terrible thing, glowing reviews constantly. Interestingly enough, in those names that you just mentioned, you didn't mention Charlie Parker. Right. But I thought that he was the big influence on you when you were young in Harlem. Oh, yes. No, uh, Charlie Parker was uh, uh, a prophet. And uh, no, he definitely, well, Charlie Parker, yes, he was a tremendous influence on my music. And also on my life, he, he was really a uh, person who influenced my life first for the worse and then for the better. Why did he influence it for the worse? Well, because Charlie Parker had a habit, a drug habit, and every young player wanted to be like Charlie Parker, and therefore we wanted to do everything that Charlie Parker did. So we made and it all right to do heroin. We thought it was great to do whatever Charlie Parker did. If Charlie Parker did it, it was wonderful. But he knew it wasn't wonderful, didn't he? He knew that he was destroying himself. And what really destroyed him was the fact that so many of his young admirers and followers were following him in this aspect of his life. Did he try to kick it? Did he try I to... think he did, but that's a very, very, very difficult habit. And I think he tried. I, I know that he didn't want other people to do it, so I have to assume that he must have grappled with getting off of it himself. You see, and he got me off of it. How it did he get you off it? Well, I was fortunate enough to be playing on a uh, record date with him, you know, my idol. 
And um, he knew that I had been involved with drugs, but he thought that I had stopped, and I sort of gave him the impression that I had stopped, which I had in a way, but then I started again, which I didn't tell him that, but somebody else told him, well, no, Sonny is still, you know, using drugs. And when he saw that, I saw his face and the look in his eyes, expression, it was such a downer to him because he was so proud to know that I had stopped using drugs. And when I saw that, it really turned on the light. My I really realized that he was being destroyed just by other people following him. And I said, okay, I'm going to stop using drugs once and for all. And I did. Took a while, didn't it? I mean, it was hard. Well, I went to uh, a place uh, which was a uh, sort of the precursor of what we call the Betty Ford Clinic in the United States. And it was a place where... uh, people involved with drugs would spend uh, four and a half months under a strict uh, regimen and so forth. And uh, I went there, and uh, when I came out, of course, it was hard for me to be around the music scene uh, because I had a lot of friends that were still using drugs, but I was able to be strong enough to uh, resist and come out. Now, unfortunately, Charlie Parker passed away before I could come out. I was really going to see him and let him know that that, uh, I got his message, but he passed away. Did you guys think that heroin enabled you to play better? Oh, yeah. You did? Oh, yeah. yeah. And do you think it did? That's a very, very difficult question. I think that a drug uh, uh, might give you a boost for a period of time, but then you reach the point where it begins to detract. So I think that using drugs can make you feel that I'm playing better and maybe you might even sound better to people listening to you. But it doesn't last. You're going to reach a point where you're going to find that you're going backwards. So I have to answer that question in saying yes and no. Eventually, no. You did some time in prison, I think, for armed robbery. Was that tied up with your heroin habit? That was tied up with my heroin habit. I'm not a very uh, violent person. In fact, I've never fired a gun in my life, but I was cajoled into, let's go down, and and the guys gave me the gun, and I put it in my pocket, and we got apprehended, and uh, I ended up uh, going to uh, a penitentiary for that. But, uh, you know, it uh, it's all part of my life, and so I have to accept it. That was before I ended up in the uh, Betty Ford Clinic. That that was before that. And uh, you see, I came out from the, that uh, uh, prison environment, and I went back to drugs again, which shows what a strong pull uh, heroin has. It, it's really, I mean, it's, it's very few people can escape it.
Very few people that use heroin can escape it. I consider myself really blessed and fortunate to uh, have been able to overcome it. You must see young guys. Now, I don't know whether heroin is the drug of choice amongst musicians that you mix with these days, but you must see young people going down the same track as you could have. Well, Kim, not really. These days, the young musicians are not into destructive things. A lot of the young musicians today eat health foods and they realize the uh, benefit of uh, having a strong mind and a strong body and all this stuff. So it was a while when I got off of drugs back in the 50s when there were a lot of young people still using drugs. Now, young musicians don't seem to be afflicted with that anymore, thank God. I read that in those days, Harlem was just awash with heroin. You could hardly escape it, is that right? Well, yes, it was sort of an invasion around the uh, time of the Korean War, I think, in the United States. And a lot of uh, guys came back from the, uh, Korea, and the drugs were just coming into Harlem. There's a lot of conspiracies that, that they were uh, introducing to Harlem to, uh, you know, just demoralize the population. I, that may be true. I don't know. But in the 50s, late 40s, yes, drugs were just everywhere. It really decimated what was a really a vibrant, very uh, wonderful area, Harlem. You know, there was so much great music and uh, great uh, uh, thought and everything coming out of Harlem. But drugs really decimated the community. I was uh, listening to the Without a Song, the 9-11 concert album last night, which is fantastic, and I wanted you to tell me the story of... 9-11 because you were caught up in the explosion and of course it's all the more poignant to us now given what's happened to Osama bin Laden. Right, right. Well, <laughs> I live up in the country, upstate New York, and it's about uh, 125 miles into Manhattan where we also have an apartment. And uh, my apartment was uh, about six blocks uh, from the World Trade Center. And uh, I was there that morning. Uh, it was a nice blue sky, beautiful morning. I was getting ready to uh, go to Boston later that week. My wife was coming down the next day. And uh, I was in my apartment. I heard this big... Uh, Pow! Says, gee, what's that? I didn't, you know, I thought maybe a small plane had crashed down by the Hudson River. And, of course, then I had on a sports station, and uh, then they began talking about it. So I pulled out my old uh, black-and-white TV. It was just about working. <laughs> and uh, I looked on the screen and saw what was happening. And uh, the other plane coming into the other uh, building, uh, the Trade Center. So, you know, I went downstairs. I was up on the 40th floor, and I went downstairs. It was like London during the Blitz in the Second World War. And women were uh, screaming, and 
We stood there and watched the tower burn. Way up there, we watched it burn, and then the other tower came down. And when that happened, we started, I say we, I mean just the people in the, in the street, people in the building and everyone in the area. We began to run, and of course, uh, that wouldn't have helped us, but the building did implode. That other building imploded, and so it didn't fall over. So we were safe. But uh, as you know, there was a tremendous amount of toxic pollution. There was a toxic disaster in that area for very long uh, uh, after that. And um, I was fortunate. I went back upstairs. There was nothing I could do. And then uh, I was evacuated by our uh, army and uh, the next day. And uh, then I came up to my home in upstate New York. I read a story about that, how you came down to be evacuated and the bus was full. They wouldn't let you on the bus. <laughs> and you had a kind of a flashback, <laughs> as African-Americans may well have. Tell me about that. Yes, well, you know, unfortunately, we don't have all of our racial problems solved yet in the United States. And... Uh, when I was downstairs waiting around uh, for the bus to come, it was, it was really a, quite a scene. There was ambulances, police, everything, and people getting sick, being treated from going into the area. I mean, it was just a terrible scene. Anyway, we were waiting to get evacuated, and I saw this bus there. I went to get on the bus, and the driver said, oh, no, no, we're, we're full, we're full. So that flashback came to me. Well, gee, they're just telling me we're full because I'm black. See, that was what came to my mind. Of course, I was wrong because it, uh, that bus was full. And the next bus that came, I was got on with some of the other people. We, I lived in an interracial building. There, there were uh, two little old Italian ladies that would sitting there just waiting very calmly, just waiting for things to, for the buses to come. And I looked at them and I felt guilty. I said, well, look how nice these women are sitting here waiting. And I'm all excited, you know, so it kind of shamed me. So you went on and did the concert in Boston. Uh, four or five days later, uh, recorded without a song, the 9-11 concert, as I mentioned. That must have been an extraordinary concert to do because it was the subtext of it was this terrible, terrible event. Yes. Strangely enough, I didn't really want to do the concert because I was so discombobulated, but I was so traumatized by what had happened that when I got home, I just wanted to kind of reflect and try to figure out what happened. But my dear wife said, no, we must do it. We must do it. Your late and, wife, I'm very sorry to hear that, Lucy, you yes, passed on. Yes, 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 that that was my uh, partner. We'd been uh, together 45 years, and uh, she possessed qualities which I did not possess. So she insisted we make it, and uh, okay, I went up there and we made it. I'm glad that we did. And I'm very glad that you're coming to New Zealand. We're all looking forward tremendously to it. 
Can I just have a response from you to the news that Osama bin Laden has been killed? It's very complicated. Of course, if you are someone who demands vengeance, then it's perfect because a lot of people, innocent people, were killed. And, you know, it was a horrific scene where people having to jump out of those towers. So if you seek vengeance from some person, then, yes, it's a wonderful thing that he was caught and killed. I can understand that. Some people, though, in the world don't seek vengeance. You know, there's something in the Bible that says uh, vengeance is mine and that man shouldn't seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Saith the Lord. You see, so what do you do? You you either uh, believe in the Bible or you don't believe in the Bible. And do you? I believe in a higher power, much wisdom which is expressed in the Bible, much wisdom which is expressed in other holy books. But there, I definitely believe that there is a higher power. I don't know anything about it, the name, anything. But I know that there's a higher power that creates everything because, after all, where did I come from? I don't know where I came from. I was just a little boy that grew up, and here I am, a human being in this strange world, and nobody knows where they came from. It's possible to think that the higher power was working through the United States to kill Osama bin Laden, of course. That might be George Bush's argument. Well, then we're going back to the vengeance. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a very, very, very complicated question. It's very, very complicated. I'd rather not uh, put myself out there as believing one way or another. All I believe is that I have to be true to the man in the mirror. And my upbringing told me that the only way to live is to do unto others as others would do unto you. Saxophonist Sonny Rollins, who is doing one New Zealand concert, his first New Zealand concert, and just the one. Um, at the Wellington Jazz Festival on June the 11th.